Uh, first of all, uh, my name is David Webb. I'm the uh, head of the Academic Finance Department here at the LSE. It's a great pleasure for me to uh, introduce uh, Luigi uh, Zingales uh, uh, to give a talk today. Uh, Luigi is somebody that I've known since very young. So when I, uh, <laughs> when I first met him, he was a young, enthusiastic, vibrant, slightly heavier than he is now, um, soccer player really, playing in the fabulous soccer field of Gersensee in Italy, in, uh, in, sorry, in Switzerland, uh, where there was an annual uh, summer conference that we attended. Um, even then, he was, uh, how can one say, outspoken, always clear, always enthusiastic, and throughout his career has attempted to write really penetrating, important, and I have to say, um, by the modern standards of economics, very easy to read papers. Um, the, the gist of his research has always been to get to the very heart of corporate governance and effectively uh, how uh, governance practices in the economy uh, help uh, economies work effectively and uh, working on his own in part and often with Raghuram Rajan, colleague at the University of Chicago, uh, made a tremendous impact on uh, the modern body of theoretical and empirical finance as an academic discipline. Um, his work has been published extensively uh, in the major journals, both in economics and finance. Uh, certainly students uh, here at the LSE that study in my department uh, will be familiar with his work. Even second-year undergraduates uh, are aware of uh, some of the work because I had it on my reading list in years ago when I taught the main second-year undergraduate finance course. Um, a, a feature of Luigi's work uh, has always been uh, to try and help uh, inform our understanding of how markets work and how markets should be regulated, if they should be regulated at all, how governance and regulatory practices should be, uh, structures should be uh, uh, formed uh, to ensure that the markets deliver what we ultimately want them to deliver, which is um, good uh, quality services to uh, we, the consumer, the citizens of the society. His work has broadened over the years. Most recently, I think he's studying civil capital, what that is, how it works, how important it is, together with uh, uh, Laura Sapienza at uh, Northwestern University. Um, in a way, it doesn't come as a surprise to me that Luigi's written this book, um, and... Uh, the style of it reflects some of, uh, a little of Luigi's personality. Those, of, uh, those who know him well will, um, will, will, will hear his voice as they read the book. Um, as you read through the book, it's a wonderful story starting with a rather, I, I have to say, my personal feeling, a, a, a rather um, optimistic young man arriving in America, seeing America as a very different place to Italy, a land of opportunity, streets paved with gold, the American dream before him, a non-nepotistic society with institutions in which we could have confidence and trust, etc. Very different from his perception of Italy. Unfortunately, as the story unfolds, we're left with a, rather a much more concerning picture uh, than certainly he had when he first went to America um, about 25 years ago, I guess. Um, 
But there's a statement in the book which I think actually sums, up, sums it up, and I'm not going to say much more myself since you're here to listen to Luigi, but I guess uh, the next 45 minutes may um, uh, uh, prove this to be a reasonably accurate summary. That for those readers who are already angry, I hope that what my no-holes-barred expose resonates, uh, sorry, resonates with your frustrations. For those who were not angry when you picked up this book, I hope my expose has made you so. And I believe the book does that. But it does it in a rather positive way, because it's not just that it identifies the problems that lay before us, for us and uh, alerts us to the importance of thinking about these issues, uh, you know, applying human reason, etc., and our best knowledge, but it also comes up with some solutions. And hopefully today uh, Luigi will actually hint at or describe one or two of those. And then after he's done so, We'll, uh, we'll have 45 minutes of uh, open discussion and finish it no later than 8 o'clock. So with that said, I'd like to introduce the Robert McCormack Professor of Entrepreneurship and Fri Finance at the David G. Booth Facul and David G. Booth Faculty Fellow at the Graduate School of Business, University of Chicago, Professor Luigi Zingales, to talk to you about a capitalism for the people. So, Luigi. Thank you very much, uh, David, especially for making me feel so young. <laughs> um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and uh, I, it's very sort of uh, uh, refreshing and consoling that so many people are coming here today after uh, a week where you had much better to see. Uh, I heard that uh, this week uh, there was a Nobel Prize winner for peace, Hang Sao Suu Kyi, and then uh, um, the Dalai Lama, so it's really downhill uh, from there. But I hope I will not disappoint you uh, too much. Uh, as David said, I think this is uh, uh, a book that uh, is partly sort of a, an economic book, part of a, it's an autobiographical component, and uh, David likes to make fun of things, uh, so he exaggerated a bit, uh, just a bit. Uh, but I think it's, it's true that uh, um, I sort of uh, uh, left Italy um, 25 years ago. And uh, I left Italy because I got a sense that uh, there was no uh, future for me in, in that country. And uh, for those of you who are not particularly familiar, many of you are Italian or know Italy, but I want to sort of uh, point out a couple of facts that uh, people might not be so familiar. In, uh, Italians invented the word nepotism and still live by it. Uh, even emergency room doctors are chosen based on their political affiliation, not on the basis of uh, their ability to actually cure people. It's much more important who you know rather than what you know. And uh, it used to be said that in order to go up in life, what you needed to do is marry well. Now, the only things that changed over the years since I left is that now it's enough to sleep around well. You don't need to get married. <laughs> and for me, sort of leaving was not just a question of economic opportunity, it was a question of freedom. Uh, because in this world, uh, really, uh, you undermine the freedom. It's not true that uh, uh, good people don't necessarily emerge in Italy. I think in spite of all this, you have a lot of talented and very capable people and the system is actually surprisingly good at sort of selecting at least some good people in this, in this mess. However, uh, you don't feel free. People are anxious, and that's one of the characteristics when you start doubting that the system that uh, attributes rewards and responsibility is fair, 
you start worrying about sort of uh, should I study or should I invest in uh, networks or other things? And then people do that. Um, my daughter, who grew up in the United States, spent a year in, in Italy to do a year at high school in Italy. And when she came back, she volunteered, say, there's no reason to go to college in Italy. There's no return to college. Uh, it's much better to sort of uh, get to know people and move ahead in that situation rather than going to college. I think that's sort of uh, quite depressing uh, for a young fellow and was depressed for me and that's the reason why I left. And in the United States, I have to say, I found more than I hoped for. And maybe that's what, uh, I didn't say that uh, streets were paved with gold, but I think that uh, I really enjoy not only a, 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 a academic and economic success, I enjoy most of, of it, uh, of all, freedom. And uh, <clears throat> I always like to say one thing that, uh, for me, summarizes what uh, America and what the University of Chicago is for me. I came up for tenure in uh, uh, September, October of uh, 1998. And, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the academic process, the tenure process is that the faculty sends for letters asking other faculty, important faculty in other institutions, uh, whether this uh, fellow deserves tenure. And uh, one negative letter at a place like Chicago is enough to kill you. And uh, those letters you cannot argue with. If they come and they're negative, you're dead. And silly me, exactly the same time in which I was going out for tenure, I just started writing for an Italian newspaper, and uh, the long-term capital management sort of collapse just occurred. And in, in sort of uh, discussing it, I pointed out the fact that, uh, you know, there was a bit too close a relationship between the Bank of Italy, that was a strategic investor in the long-term capital management, and the long-term capital management themselves, and the type of strategy they were following and betting. And uh, my article was translated into English, and one of the partners of LTCM, uh, I heard, wanted to sue me for libelous suit. Now, another part of LTCM, not the one who wanted to sue me, is sort of uh, the famous Nobel Prize winner, Myron Scholes, who was former faculty at Chicago and a big donor of Chicago. Uh, one word negative could have killed me. Uh, to this day, I don't know whether that word was ever pronounced, but uh, I got tenure at Chicago, and I really am thankful to a system that allows people to speak their mind and not be penalized for that, uh, in spite of being so stupid to do those things without thinking. So this is the, the view of America that I had, and I think that maybe is a bit idealized, but I think that uh, uh, was uh, by and large true. And uh, however, I've seen over the years a deterioration of uh, the system. And I've seen a deterioration uh, in many dimensions. Let me sort of uh, give you a couple of examples. The first one is one of the things that I admire the United States arriving there was the extent of uh, trust that uh, individuals had in their own institutions. So when I arrived in Boston the first year, there was a tornado watch. And uh, I wasn't experienced tornado watch in Italy. And the first thing they told me uh, the mayor said is you have to go inside the house, tape the windows, and stay inside until the tornado uh, watch is lifted. And being Italian, my first reaction is if the mayor tells you to tape the windows, it must be that his brother is selling tape. 
<laughs> and if sort of uh, they tell you to stay inside, that's probably a good reason to go outside. Because uh, in Italy, if you do the opposite of what the government tells you to do, you do fine. And if you follow instruction, generally you get into trouble. So uh, that's not, not true. The average American believe in a system, but I think believe in the system not because they're full, is because on average, historically, uh, there was a longer tradition of a government by the people and for the people. And this sort of trust seems to have disappeared. And I noticed it during the uh, financial crisis, but I wanted to sort of uh, document it. So I, I ran a survey of uh, a thousand representative American, and I asked the question, this was in December 08, do you think that Hank Paulson, the Secretary of Treasury at the time, acted in the interest of the country or in the interest of Goldman Sachs? And 20% of the people did not answer. Of the one who answered, 50% said in the interest of Goldman Sachs. And it's not just Paulson, because we asked a similar question six months later about Obama, and the only difference is that people were divided whether Obama was in the interest of the unions or in the interest of the financial industry. But still, a minority thought was acting in the interest of the country at large. And I think that that is really depressing in terms of sort of uh, the level of trust that now Americans have to their own institution. The second point that really hit me hard is I teach entrepreneurship in Chicago, and often I get uh, people to pitch ideas, and uh, I sort of enjoy giving them a few advice just to get a sense of uh, what the idea is and, uh, and learn about uh, different uh, spaces and help my teaching. And in March 2009, uh, some young fellows came, and they had a pretty interesting idea. Remember, March 2009 was the, the worst moment of the crisis, and uh, there was no lending coming out from banks. And this guy said, oh, we have a different model in which we're going to do installment loans, and we're going to fund them with a close-end mutual fund. Uh, it was sort of at least worth thinking about. But after I sort of started talking to them, I, I started wondering, I said, wait a minute, why did you come to me? I'm not the only professor of entrepreneurship in Chicago. I'm not the only professor of entrepreneurship in the country. So why me? And to my disappointment, I learned that they came to me because they saw me very much engaged in the public square. And they said, you might be somebody, a good advocate for us to ask more, to ask funds from top uh, to fund our business. So here there are some young entrepreneurs and their first thought is how to lobby Washington to get some money out of Washington. That is really the end of the American spirit. It's not anymore a country where you think about a new product, a new service, uh, a new way of doing business. The model is you go to Washington and lobby Washington. And in fact, it's, it's pretty depressing that seven of the 10 wealthiest counties in the United States are in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where nothing is produced except sort of regulation. So is that is the fact that there's so much concentration of wealth is worrisome. And unfortunately, you say, why are you linking these two facts? Why are you linking lobbying and you're linking uh, sort of uh, this mistrust? Because the two things are to some extent linked. First of all, the existence of lobbying and the importance of lobbying generate mistrust. But also, 
there is a vicious circle that I've seen so many times playing in Italy that goes as follows. Uh, the perception that the game is rigged lead people to uh, get angry and lobby or voice for some public readdressment of this imbalance. And so there is a populist temptation to try to sort of do something about it. And precisely because there is this populist temptation and the rule of law is put in doubt, businessmen say the only way in which we can do business is by having some political connection and some sort of uh, uh, privilege. Because otherwise, it's too risky. And of course, the very political connection and privileges that uh, make them invest or be involved uh, create more public resentment, leading to exacerbate the populist reaction. And I saw this playing in America very clearly in 2009, the very month in which Congress voted a 100% marginal tax rate on bank bonuses. Never became law because the Senate did not pass. But the Congress voted 100% marginal tax rate on bonuses. The, at the very moment, the Obama administration was creating what is called the private-public investment partnership that was a heavily subsidized sort of uh, uh, investment, private investment subsidized with public money in toxic assets. And if you ask the Obama administration why they were doing that, said the only way to attract, given the current environment, the only way to attract businesses to do that is to subsidize it heavily. And of course, the more was subsidized, the more anger was generating at the public at large. And this is a vicious circle that we need to break. And the question is, how do we break this vicious circle? And in general, in around the world, when you mention the word populism, you interpret it necessarily as a four-letter word, a negative word. And that's true also in America, but not necessarily. This is, America had its fair share of crazy populists. Uh, however, also had a tradition of populism that was a people's attempt to rebalance the economic imbalance you saw in, uh, in, the, in the system in, to create a more fair market. And uh, the People's Party, at the end of the 19th century, never won any major election. However, its platform uh, became part of the progressive era legislation. And in the 20, beginning of the 20th century, a Republican president, Theodore Roosevelt, introduced a number of laws, starting with antitrust law and trust busting and sort of uh, 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 busting the, the, the money trust that we balance the system in the example of marketplace of capitalists for the people that I had in mind when I moved to the United States and I think is sort of a, a ideal form of economic system. Unfortunately, over the years, this has been lost. But my challenge, the challenge I tried to pick up in this book is to say, can we use this resentment, can you use this outrage in a positive way rather than a negative way? And how can we do that? And I think that the, the first thing we have to do, and probably the most important, is to separate very clearly, 
to what I call is being pro-market and what it is being pro-business. Businessmen like free market when they get into a market, but the moment they are in, they want to put barrier to entry. And this is natural, is part of the competitive process, is only distortive when the government gets involved in it and, and sanction those barrier to entry with laws and regulation. However, it's very important to understand that the two concepts are not one and the same. And I think that all too often we have that feeling uh, and especially the, the conservatives, especially the free marketeers are very concerned at criticizing business even when business does terrible things. And my point is precisely because we care about free markets, precisely because we care about an economic system that works in the long term, we have to take the stand. In fact, we should be the first one to take a very strong stand on this because we don't want to degenerate uh, into uh, a system of chronic capitalists. And, you know, for me, this, this idea or this distinction is probably more natural than for most because being Italian, I've witnessed what happened to a country when a businessman takes the free market flag and use it for his own interests and run the country as where his own business. Berlusconi had been prime minister in eight of the last 11 years. GDP per capita went down 4% over this period. Debt to GDP went from 100% to 120%. And by any measure of economic and political freedom, we're worse off. And too few people had the courage to say this is indecent and this is not what free market is about. In fact, it's the opposite of what free market is about. And we need to have the courage to stand up and make the difference. Besides that, however, I think we need to address what are the problems. And this is mostly focused to the US environment, but I think you can find some lessons for uh, UK and the rest of uh, Europe as well. But that what are the problems that uh, today free markets face? And one of the problems that free market faces today is a sense of disenfranchisement. Is the fact that people uh, have a sense that they're not getting ahead, that the American dream is not there anymore, and that the rules uh, don't seem to apply to uh, all the people in the same way. I remember when, when my children were playing Monopoly as a small kids, uh, they will not last more than 10 minutes because after 10 minutes, my daughter, who was two years younger, would start crying, saying that my son uh, was cheating. And my son, with the rules in his hands, was documented, he was not cheating, he was simply selectively enforcing the rules. And being sort of older, he knew the rules and was selectively enforcing. And my daughter, who was no fool, uh, understood that something was unfair. And she reacted in the way that most people react when they see something that's unfair. They give up. And I think that this sense of giving up is pervasive throughout the political spectrum. And is the common element uh, that accommodates both the Tea Party protests and the Occupy Wall Street. You see them as completely at the opposite end of the political spectrum. But they both fight this sort of uh, uh, sense of uh, disenfranchisement. They both fight a Leviathan. The shape that this Leviathan takes is different 
in the two movements. For the Tea Party is the big government. For the Occupy Wall Street is big business. In fact, there are two sides of the same coin. The real problem is big, powerful, monopolistic corporations in bed with the government. And until we understand that these two things are one and the same, I think that we are losing perspective. But as I said, one thing that, uh, so there is this sense of disenfranchisement, but there is also a real decline or not growth in wages. So one statistic that I learned that actually shocked me quite a bit is that today the typical male in the United States makes 19% less than his father made in real terms. For females it's better, but you know, there, there's been a women emancipation, a lot of things going on. But for the males, there is a decline in real wages. And doing research for this book, what I came across is a picture like this, which is uh, quite stunning. I don't know how much you can see, but sort of the dash line is the growth in productivity uh, between 1945 and today. And by and large, this is as much as a straight line as uh, economic data can be. The, the, the solid line is the average real weekly earnings of good-producing workers. And what you see is that up to 1975, the two lines are basically moving together, which is what we expect. And it says productivity goes up, wages go up, everybody's better off. That's basically the golden age of the American dream. Since 1975, that real wage is flat, if at all, declining. And so when I first saw that, I said, what is going on? Why sort of uh, wages don't grow and uh, productivity keeps going up? And in a sense, in this picture, there is a lot of the disenfranchisement of people that not only resent that there is income inequality, but they resent the fact that they don't even go up. In a system that only gives to some people, is not a system that is viable in the long term. Now, being in Chicago, uh, I've learned to sort of uh, look at the data very carefully. So what I've done is I said, wait a minute. Let's look at the compensation instead of wages. So the dotted line is the line of uh, the average uh, uh, real hourly compensation for the same workers. And it's not going up as much as it used to, but it's much increasing. Uh, uh, unlike the, the, the wages. So what is the difference between one and the other? The difference between one and the other is mostly the cost of health care. The cost of health care is paid in the United States by the employer, and the employee does not see it, but is eating up every increase in the real wage. And why? It's because there is no pressure to contain cost. The United States are the country that spend the most in healthcare with results that are not particularly astonishing in terms of performance. So this is a sector that needs to be uh, exposed to more competition and better incentives because cost containment is not there and because every subsidization, the very fact that people don't pay their sort of a cost of healthcare is a way to subsidize this industry because they can increase costs more easily without anybody noticing. 
So that's one, one aspect. But the other aspect, if you see the difference between, again, the dashed line and the gray line, that difference is sort of uh, the difference in deflating productivity by the uh, CPI or de de uh, deflating it by the uh, increasing prices of general uh, um, business-produced goods. So the dash line divides by the basically output of the good producing sector in the United States. The other one, which is much less flat, divides by the general CPI. Again, what is the difference between the two? In part, the non-business sector in the economy, one is against healthcare, the other is education. And that again is the other aspect that makes Americans so resentful. The cost of college has increased tremendously and this is another sector where sort of uh, you had a tremendous increase in, uh, the, in the cost and a tremendous increase of the subsidy. The tertiary education in the United States is probably the most subsidized sector with results that are not always stunning because we look at the top of the distribution at the Harvard, the Chicago, etc. But there are a lot of middle of the school road that cost a fortune and they're not particularly efficient and productive. And so again, Reducing the subsidy and increasing the competition helps sort of bring in innovation and containing costs in that sector. However, even at the end of the day, you adjust everything. There is this sort of uh, uh, increase in, 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 uh, in the distribution of income, which is worrisome. It's also worrisome because people tend to give up. If you uh, participate in a game in which one person wins big, and everybody else wins very little or nothing. You don't want to participate if you start with a little handicap. In a winner-take-all game, uh, who starts with a small advantage ends up disproportionately more likely to get to win. And so while I don't believe in uh, equality of outcomes, I do believe in equality of opportunities. And one form of acquired opportunities is to bring people at a better condition when they try to apply for college. The state of primary and secondary education in the United States is abysmal. And again, what is the cost of this? One source of this is sort of a union teacher that are against every form of measurement of performance. This is a growing business sector, a growing sector in the economy where we don't have any measure, objective measure of quality and we don't reward at all people based on quality. There is a Stanford professor that documents that if we were just able to fire the bottom 10% of the teachers, the quality of US primary education will rise substantially in the PISA statistics, which has the, the international statistics on quality of education. So this is clearly one sector where we need to intervene. But we also need to intervene to compensate or, or to make, uh, give more opportunity to people who have a bad education to begin with. In the United States, there is a long tradition of affirmative action based on race. And historically, it might have been the right response. Today is not a right response. Doesn't make any sense that the children of Obama are advantaged when the children of other poor people are not advantaged simply because they are the wrong race. What you want 
in my view, is a voucher-based system in which the value of the voucher is a function of your starting points. So if you are a uh, inner kid, uh, um, kid that uh, don't have uh, uh, educated parents, uh, the value of your voucher should be higher so that schools, good schools, will compete to have you in their school and teach you a better quality of education. And I think that's an integral part to a, a market and a system that people feel uh, is for them and not just for a few. The second uh, line of attack in my sort of a set of proposal is actually to change the way regulation is done. Unlike some of my colleagues at Chicago, I do believe that regulation is essential for markets to work. Without regulation, the market is a jungle where the, the strongest will prevail, not a even playing field where the best prevails. However, being in Chicago, I'm very aware of the fact that most regulation is written in the interest of the incumbents to protect new entry and give some profits to the incumbents at the expense of everybody else. And so how can I sort of a trade-off distinction between a regulation that is corrupt and the lack of regulation that is equally destroyed. And I think that the solution is twofold. The first one is to advocate simple regulation. The only force for good in regulation is the scrutiny of public opinion. When public opinion gets involved, uh, they can pressure their congressmen into voting uh, what is in the interest of their constituency rather than what is the interest of their donors. The problem is that most regulation is too complicated for people to follow. While the Glass-Steagall Act was only 34 pages, the uh, Dodd-Frank Act is 2,400 pages mandating 67 studies and further regulation. I have to admit, I wanted at the beginning of the regulatory process follow what was going on. It's my area of expertise, it's my interest, and I try hard. At some point, I had to give up. Unless you are a paid lobbyist, and very well-paid one, and who does only that for a living, you cannot keep up with the explosion of regulation. And, you know, I found a quote of a regulator say, we do regulation on purpose in this way. Because the more complexities, the easier it is to sneak in the, the loopholes and the advantages to our constituencies. In the old days in Italy, the law was written in Latin. And was very useful for the lawyers because nobody understood it except them. And so they shaped the law in the way that was in their interest. And you know, regulation in the United States is written in, in, the, in the common English, actually it's written legalese, but it's so complicated that accomplish the same outcome that people cannot see. So you don't want to say no to regulation, you want to say no to complicated regulation, even in the cost of having economically inefficient regulation. Not too inefficient, but this is where I changed my mind on the separation between investment banking and commercial banking. Uh, many like to accuse the repeal of the Glass-Steagall 
to attribute to the repeal of Glass-Steagall the uh, financial crisis. I think that, that is false. Uh, however, if you go down the path of what is called the Volcker rule, uh, it's a very unenforceable path. Uh, I have the deepest respect for Paul Volcker, but I think that the decision of the Obama administration to adopt that rule was a very Machiavellian effort to say people want the separation, people want Glass-Steagall, the financial industry does not want Glass-Steagall, so how can I have the cake and eat it too? I adopt a rule that goes under the name of Paul Volcker, who has a fantastic reputation and sounds like Glass-Steagall, but is unenforceable, so it doesn't really impact the financial industry. I have a cake and eat it too. And that's the reason why having simpler regulation is important. The second thing is I want re regulation uh, that produces data that makes regulators accountable to what they do. Let me give you an example. In the United States, state regulator and the Fed uh, rate banks. And they have this internal rating system that they don't make public. And they don't make public because uh, they th think that uh, will be uh, creating stability in the financial sector. And I might even agree that making that public at the moment might not be the right thing to do. However, there is no justification whatsoever not to publish this data with a delay. Three, four years. Who cares about the ratings four years ago? However, if the regulator knows that the data will be released, will be much more careful in what he or she does. And actually, a colleague of mine teamed up with somebody at the Fed in order to have access to that data, wrote a paper, and when the Fed saw that the results were not what uh, the Fed liked, discontinued access to the data. So you, have, you can have regulatory data only if you have the right answer. If you don't have the right answer, you don't have the data. That, that's not sort of a democracy. That's not a, a good system. And related to this, in terms of, of regulation, I think that much regulation can be substituted with uh, what you guys should know because it was invented here, what are called Pigouvian taxes. Uh, you know, uh, Charles Pigou uh, was a, a famous professor at LSE who uh, pioneered the use of uh, taxation to fix uh, problems in the marketplace. So the best example of all is we know that uh, people don't internalize the cost of pollution because there is no price to sort of uh, polluting. You can pollute for free. So if we impose a tax on gasoline that pollutes, we are forcing people to internalize part of that uh, cost. And these are the best taxes of all. I call them the good taxes, even if generally nobody likes taxes. But this is a good taxes for two reasons. Number one, helps fix a problem. Number two, in the process, raises revenue, allowing us to reduce other taxes that are sort of uh, less pleasant. So why those taxes that are so useful from an economic point of view are so rare in the world? And the answer is because the political economy is the wrong one, or depending on the point of view, the right one, in the sense that a Pigouvian tax tax a few to benefit the many. 
from a lobbying point of view, is precisely what uh, doesn't pass through Congress because people get really uh, steered up to protect their own turf and the benefits are so diffuse that the people at large will not rise and try to push it. So my idea is why don't we transform much of not only the regulation but also the subsidies that we have in the form of Peguvian taxation. For two reasons. First of all, we know as an economist that subsidizing home ownership is equal to taxing renters. However, if you are a congressman and you go in front of uh, your constituency and say, I really believe we should uh, promote home ownership and the way I'm going to do it is by taxing renter, I think you're not going to fly very well. And that's precisely the point. You're making this subsidization less likely, this distortion less likely, however, still possible because in the United States, we do have a tax on cigarettes. That's the ultimate example of a Peguvian tax. In many countries, we have a tax on sort of uh, uh, pollution of various forms. And what I advocate is a tax on lobbying. If we think that lobbying really creates some problems, I think a progressive tax on lobbying will help us fix it. And now, so many people, including John Planders on the uh, FT said that my proposals require sort of a Turkeys to vote for Thanksgiving or, or, or Christmas, depending on your traditions. And there is an element of that. I do recognize it fully. However, the silver lining is that Turkeys do vote for Thanksgiving if they fear that Thanksgiving might come even earlier. And I give you an example. In the United States, there was a proposal of law to prohibit insider trading by congressmen. Nobody wanted to push it forward, so was laying there unheard of and sort of uh, uh, untaken care of for years. Until a book came out that exposed the fact that many, inside, many congressmen on both sides of the, the, the aisle uh, did take advantage of inside information for their own profits. In three days, the law passed both the, the Congress, and the House, and the Senate and became law of the United States. So it is possible to sort of have turkeys voting for Christmas if there is enough political pressure. And that's exactly why it's important to have things simple, because with simple things, people will rise up and, and make their opinion be heard. With complicated things, that would be impossible. But the last point, and it's a big relief is the last point, the last point uh, is something that is more personal to me and because I think that I as a professor uh, of finance in a business school have some responsibility and many of us have some responsibility because we've been a bit too shy in standing up on what we consider what is right and what is wrong. Economists have this envy of real scientists and they pretend to be real scientists and so they defend themselves and say we cannot have any normative statement because we do positive analysis like uh, the physicists do positive analysis of the law of nature. However, there is a big difference that physicists don't teach to atoms and we to teach to businessmen. And that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, you know, my colleague and Nobel Prize winner um, Gary Becker pioneered the economic approach to crime. And it's a great idea has been has brought tremendous insight. However, 
as one negative effect. The way in which he does the economic approach to crime, for those who are not familiar, is simply say, let's just do as a working assumption that people commit a crime every time the benefit of the crime, or the expected benefit, is bigger than the expected cost. And the expected cost is the probability of being caught times the size of the, of the punishment. It's a very useful uh, working hypothesis. It works very well in capturing what goes on. In no way, it's a normative statement. The fact that you refuse to do a crime when the expected benefits is bigger than the expected cost is not a proof of irrationality. However, economists tend to say it is rational to commit a crime every time the expected benefits is bigger than the expected cost. And the opposite of rational is irrational, and irrational is not good. And so it's not a coincidence that economists are the most amoral people that we know. And not because cheapskates like me enter economics, which is true, mm -hmm. but also this study of economics has been proved make people more self-interest and more narrow interest and less interested in, in sort of a societal values at large. And a, a former student of Gary Becker told me that the most amoral people he knows are students of Gary Becker because they took his <laughs> sort of a positive analysis as a normative analysis. And to the credit of Gary, he never said that. However, if you keep only insisting on a positive analysis and you call rational a behavior and irrational the opposite, inevitably you are conveying a moral message and the wrong moral message. Now, I'm not a moral philosopher, so I'm not going to be able to tell you what is right or wrong with a capital I or the capital uh, uh, whatever, W. Uh, but uh, I, as an economist, I can tell you that certain behaviors are opportunistic and make the market less efficient, uh, reduce, the, re reduce the size of the pie. And those behaviors, like, for example, excessive lobbying, uh, are detrimental to society at large. So as a business school professor, I should not relegate uh, ethics to a special course that is sort of a, uh, a must-do thing that everybody ignore the, 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 the next day. And so I think that the best way to uh, make people revolt is to have a special course on that. I, I learned that in Italy because you had sort of a religion class in high school, and that's the best way to become an atheist. I think that uh, I wanted actually to make mandatory to teach Marxists in school, because that's the best way to destroy the appeal of uh, any Marxist idea. So I don't think that a good idea is, is to have special classes in ethics. Is in our regular classes, we should say, okay, this is the positive analysis. Uh, let's say the second, in my view, which might be different from my colleague's view, but at least we discuss this, my view is that this behavior is acceptable, this behavior is not. And I think that business schools are the ideal institutions to try to create and enforce some social norms. Why? Because while I told you businessmen have their interest in mind, we have the interest of the survival of a capitalist in the long term. Because if sort of capitalist doesn't work, uh, we are out of job. And so we have a vested interest in preserving the best part of the free market system. And so we should be able to stand up 
against certain behavior and sanction certain behavior. So one example, a, a former, uh, actually a PhD from MIT entered into the uh, gambling industry, became CEO of a large gambling casino. And you know, casinos used to be run by mafia people. Uh, now they are more legitimate business. And uh, mafia people were very good on the enforcement side, but were not very good on the marketing side. So. The sort of uh, uh, new technique uh, or the new claim to fame if you enter into this industry is to apply modern marketing techniques to gambling. So I read what this guy had done. And basically, my interpretation is that he made a point of trying to identify what traits characterize people who are addicted to gambling and marketed directly to them. Do we think this is a good way to build business? It's a legitimate way to do this. It's not illegal. However, it's not what we want to endorse uh, among our alumni and uh, in our sort of uh, writing and in, in our classrooms. I think it's very important that we have the courage to criticize this behavior as behavior that is bad for market in the long term. Because I think that uh, free markets is really the goose from the golden egg and I want to preserve the viability of free market in the long term. And the only way to do it is, number one, to make sort of people share the benefits of free market. And number two, uh, be able to stand up and differentiate to, uh, between bad business practices and sort of a good uh, uh, competitive behavior that brings the benefit to everyone. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Luigi. Um, we'll take, if those people that want to leave, just just leave now. I'm not a big fan of people um, sort of drifting out. Yeah. Okay, that's, uh, that's actually a low percentage, so uh, it's always dangerous doing that. Um, <laughs> But it is irritating uh, for people that are seated to uh, be interrupted by people leaving. Uh, okay, so so um, uh, since the Dalai Lama didn't deal too well with batches of questions yesterday, um, <laughs> for those that went, um, we'll take one question at a time, uh, which means we won't test Luigi's memory. Although <laughs> <laughs> I know it's pretty good. Uh, the. Uh, so uh, if you put your hand up, and it might be useful if you just say who you are, so Luigi's got an idea of who he's speaking to. Okay, young man in the middle. Yeah. Hi, my name's uh, Paul. I just, quick question, and it was right at the end of the talk, but I, I didn't quite understand the link between the gambling targeting the addicted gamblers and its threat for to capitalism. I mean, it, you could introduce more competition. They all target the same addicted gamblers. That's seems to me like the, the capitalist system perhaps perverted. But I, I know you had a, a deeper point there. I just didn't quite see it. As, as you could, thank you for the question. Uh, as you can get, I'm pretty fan of uh, competition in general. Uh, I don't believe that uh, competition can fix that particular problem. Uh, in a sense, uh, when uh, consumers are not particularly sophisticated, 
uh, or they have some addiction problem, uh, competition might actually lead more people to try to market to them rather than the other way around. And so precisely because I recognize that in this case that the traditional free markets don't work so well, I want to uh, try to find a solution that is the most uh, uh, sort of libertarian solution you can have. So some people say uh, we just ignore the problem. It's small enough and people will figure it out. And uh, I tend to believe that, uh, uh, depending on sort of the magnitude of the problem, of course, but if the problem is big enough, uh, you want to do something about it. And as I told you, I'm very skeptical about regulation in general, for the reasons I explained. One big advantage of social norms is that they cannot be captured. Why? Because enforcement is only possible if there is general consensus. So uh, it's very hard to have a social norm that say uh, giving more bias to entry to uh, rich incumbents is a good thing. And uh, that's a re the reason why I think that social norms are important. But social norms must be sort of coordinated, and especially reputation uh, must be uh, favored. And says, I think that uh, uh, not a lot of people, when they read that account, understand what's going on. And so I think that uh, if you are a business expert, you have to stand up and say, this is wrong. And uh, as I have done a lot in my area of expertise, which is the financial industry, whenever I see uh, any deal that I consider uh, unfair for the public at large, I do say it. Now, that doesn't make me particularly popular uh, in certain circles, but I think that uh, uh, I consider that my duty as an academic. And I think that uh, I would like to see more people doing the same. There are. I'm not saying in any way that I'm the only one, but I think that uh, I would like to see more. Thank you. Um, young man on the end. Uh, yeah. uh, you talked a lot about lobbying. Uh, what I was going to say, what I'm thinking is that America seems to me, when you take all the partisanship and the lobbying and the constant elections every two years, that it's pretty much ungovernable. Uh, I think it's, it's possible. I think that clearly uh, there must be some form of uh, uh, reform of public finance. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I just learned that the average congressman has. 400 fundraiser a year. So it's more than one a day. So basically, your job is to fundraise, and on the side, you actually produce laws. And uh, uh, not surprised that uh, Nancy Pelosi, when uh, she passed the healthcare reform, she said, we need to pass this law to figure out what is in it. So basically, they don't read the laws. They pass it, uh, and then we see what is in it. I think that uh, uh, that's pretty abysmal. Uh, but I think that uh, my cynical view is that a lot of the partisanship and all this extreme differentiation between Democrats and Republicans is to hide the fact that they're all the same. And you know, it's difficult to run a campaign saying we both take the same amount of money from business, we both are in bed with business, it doesn't go well. So you need to find some tangential thing like uh, uh, liberalization of marijuana or gay marriage in which we can disagree a lot, in which business doesn't really uh, get involved, and then we run the campaign on that. I think that's done on purpose. Um, I think we'll take this chap here.
and then we'll come to you and then you. You didn't mention this in your talk, but I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by economist capture and talk a little bit about it. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, lobbying is a very sort of a general process that uh, even my writing this book can be considered broadly lobbying since I advocate an idea. Um, now, what I want to raise, and I do raise in a chapter of the book, is to what extent uh, economists and academics in general uh, run the risk of being captured like regulation, regulators are captured. And this is, uh, when we economists think about regulators being captured, we don't think that these uh, are people who take bribes. In a sense, of course, there are some, but I'm not saying that this is the general case. And we're not thinking that these are immoral people, etc. We're just analyzing uh, what are the incentives. And the incentives are such that sort of uh, very often they end up uh, in the pocket or, or enhancing in the, in the pocket maybe it's too strong, but enhancing the interest of the regulator and so on and so forth. And so what I do, I simply extend the same logic to us. I, I believe in consistency. And so if I believe that regulators are captured, I should at least consider the possibility that we economists are captured. And I think that uh, there are some conditions that make us more captured than others. Uh, availability of data is, is one big thing. And so uh, that's, that's my sort of uh, uh, emphasis on uh, uh, more availability of data. Another is, of course, the, the source of financing. A third is sort of a disclosure between uh, what you write about and where you get your money. Uh, I, I'm shocked at the fact that, uh, for example, in my life as a sort of public opinion maker, twice I was approached uh, to be paid to write an op-ed. And of course I refused, not only I, I did not on purpose write on that topic anymore. Uh, but I wonder how many people uh, do that and we don't know. Uh, and uh, sort of uh, if you read between the lines, there's also an interesting case that regards LSE that is quite sort of uh, uh, problematic. So I think that uh, it's something that we economists and academics have to be much more aware. And to my surprise, when I raise this issue, people deny and said, oh no, uh, we cannot be captured because we're good people. And uh, you know, regulators are good people too. Uh, and they end up in that situation. So I think that uh, awareness is the best medicine, at least at the moment. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this chap here. Yeah. Hi, Professor. You spoke a lot about big business cozying up with government. Do you think we need technocrats such as Mario Monti's administration in Italy to really drive home the regulation which democratically elected officials like Berlusconi would never dream of doing? Actually, no. Uh, in a sense, uh, the, the title, A Capitalist for the People, is a, a hope that you don't need uh, super technocrats. Precisely because of the problem we're describing earlier, the super technocrats, and of course I'm not referring to Mario Monti, but the super technocrats tend to be the most captured. If I am a nuclear engineer, I know very well uh, the nuclear plants, but rarely I speak against nuclear plants, because if I speak against nuclear plants, I destroy the value of my human capital. If I'm an expert in financial derivatives, I rarely speak against financial derivatives, because I sort of destroy the value of my human capital. So the most expert are the most captured. In this, 
I sort of uh, uh, subscribe to the sentence of uh, George Clemenceau, the doing uh, prime minister in France during World War I, and said that uh, war is too serious a matter to let generals run it. And uh, I think there is a, a, a deep insight. Uh, competence is important, but must be sort of modulated by sort of a democracy because technocracy is very, very dangerous and is a form of capture. Um, this chap. Hi. Um, I was very interested in your analysis of healthcare costs, uh, which you presented as a market inefficiency. And similarly, you spoke of uh, tertiary education in the United States in the same way. These are areas which in the UK, to a greater or lesser extent, are taken out of the market and provided in the public sector. So I wondered if you see the solution in more efficient markets or taking certain areas out of markets altogether. Maybe this is a result of my Italian uh, upbringing, but my experience with everything that is run by the government is run inefficiently. So uh, I'm only in favor of having the government run things that I want to be inefficient because they're pretty good at being inefficient. Uh, so um, I, I don't think that uh, transferring all to sort of uh, the government is, is a solution. Um, but I think that... Uh, uh, and actually, my major concern, and this is particularly true in the United States, is the government intervention tends to be driven by the inter interests of the pharmaceutical industry. This is the reason why Bush passed the uh, Medicare Drug Act, was because uh, the pharmaceutical industry was pushing big time. And what is appalling the United States is that we give to poor people a gigantic amount of money in medicines and not enough money to live. And it says, why is that the case? Why the only form of redistribution is accepted in the United States is through sort of uh, uh, drugs? Is because the drug industry is in favor. And uh, I think that I'm much more in favor of giving people money uh, because, first of all, they choose how to use, how to use the money. And second, uh, there is nobody lobbying to give them money, uh, which is, I think, the real problem. I'm trying to see if we'd ever get a, a female to ask a question, <laughs> but uh, we didn't get a hand, so we'll go with this chap. Yeah, they'll come to you. Yeah. Uh, hello. Uh, uh, I'm, my name is Sarwar. I'm, from, I'm a SOA student. Uh, my question is, uh, uh, listening to your uh, lecture and the, and, the, and the problem with the uh, policy and efficiency of American economy, and uh, uh, also listening to the uh, stagnation of, of, of policymaking and the influence of the lobbyists, so uh, my question is uh, more uh, related to politics, but uh, it also has some uh, relation with your analysis. Like, uh, do you see any new uh, political uh, forces coming up, uh, just pointing out towards, towards this ineffic inefficiency and, and policy stagnation? And then, uh, like in some, some uh, countries, we have seen that when there is, uh, there is the economic stagnation, new political forces come up. So do you see any... Uh, possibility of such third force in USA uh, that would be uh, 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 I'm, I'm very interested to know. Yeah, I, I think that uh, there is a clear uh, possibility and in some sense a clear risk of uh, uh, new political forces that uh, 
tend to undermine the current establishment. I say risk because possibility and risk because the possibility is that people understand what I'm trying to say, and and uh, my argument cuts across the traditional political spectrum, and uh, I find myself. Uh, uh, more often in agreement with Joe Stiglitz than I find myself with Tim Geithner. And I think that uh, uh, this seems paradoxical, but I think that uh, uh, it's much more diffuse. And so I, what I hope to do with my book is to change sort of uh, the political discourse and trying to sort of see that the real discussion is between people who are free and people who are bought off. It's not between right, left and right. And, uh, and that is sort of a, a completely different argument. Now, clearly, the resentment can explode in populist movements, even in the United States. We've seen sort of uh, what happened in, uh, in Greece. We've seen what happened in, uh, in even Italy with sort of uh, this new movement uh, that is run by a professional comedian, unlike the other that are run by sort of uh, comedians that are not professional. Uh, and it's sort of, uh, I think that th this is a serious risk. And, and Part of the reason why I wrote this book is because I am worried. I think that this is coming. And the question is, uh, are we going to reform the system for the better or for the worse? Right, uh, this chap here. Can we have a microphone, third row? Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for your, for your talk. I'm um, just piggybacking off that gentleman's question um, regarding healthcare. I'm a medical student from the US. Um, also very interested in your productivity and average real earnings um, chart. Um, talking about that discrepancy you described between the weekly earnings and the hourly compensation, um, is there any political pressure you think that doctors or people that work within the healthcare system itself can apply to sort of rectify that discrepancy? The, the first one is to open up medical schools. I think that, uh, with all due respect, but the medical profession is one of the most uh, catalyzed profession in the United States. Uh, the num as far as I understand, the number of places in medical schools is fixed. And uh, it's very difficult to come from abroad. Uh, and it's, it's sort of uh, really protected uh, against entry. And so if you liberalize entry, you're going to have a clear decline in cost. Uh, and the second, I don't think uh, is in the hands of the, of the medical profession, but uh, removing the association between um, your job and your health insurance is fundamental. You know, this is a leftover of the past. The reason why in the United States uh, you get your medical insurance with your job is the result of wage control during World War II. During World War II, there was scarcity of labor because most men were sort of uh, uh, fighting the war, and there was a huge need for workforce. And uh, because they wanted to control inflation, they capped the wages. So if you are a company, you want to attract workers, you cannot increase wages, what do you do? Increase fringe benefits. So the retirement system and the health system got started that. Once you got started that way, then you have the healthcare insurance lobby that wants to prevent any change in the system. And so we are now in a situation in which people choose their job based on health insurance instead of the other way around. And I think it's, it's, it creates so many distortion. Breaking that link, I think, is essential. Lots of hands. 
I think we'll take you since uh, this chap. Yeah. No. They're all chaps. So what's the difference between one and the other? Well, it's true. I'm, I'm desperately <laughs> hoping, just in the interest of proving that we have women at the LSE, to one will ask a question. Right. Yeah. Hello. Uh, thanks for your talk. My name is Jason Bikus, and I work in the energy industry. I just wanted to understand, looking at this graph there, whether the gap, the widening gap between uh, salaries and productivity is actually the, the value mm -hmm. in between that was created was actually fed into the financial industry that has boomed since then, since the mid-70s, and whether this, this, this wealth was actually fed back to the people that were shareholders of uh, stocks. Um, actually, uh, first of all, the, the only gap left is this, okay? which, uh, which exists and is actually growing the last decade, so I don't want to underestimate, but I want to sort of tell you that that's the part. Um, these are sort of uh, uh, good producing workers, so I don't think that the uh, effect of the financial industry plays a huge role here. My interpretation of this is more a technological effect so that uh, much of the value added of a good uh, goes to uh, invention and etc. So if you th take a, an iPad or an iPod or an iPhone, uh, the cost of producing is very low and uh, all the margin is returned for R&D and much of that goes to a very few ends. So if you are the typical, now it's a bad example because the iPhone is not produced in the United States, but in uh, if goods like that, so the, uh, the typical workers, so it gets less of a uh, fraction of, of that. So that, that's my explanation for that uh, increase in the quality. But I, I have to say that I think that uh, many people have many explanations for the increase in inequality. Uh, I think it, uh, much of it has to do with technology and globalization. And, and in the book, I have an example. Um, I have to uh, admit, I, I don't play golf, but I had to use a lot of uh, golf example because soccer example, football example in the United States don't go down that well. Uh, so all my examples were thought in soccer terms and then translated into golf. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but so the example that I have in golf, I, I look at uh, the price that is paid to the winner of the Augusta Master Tournament that I'm told is the most prestigious golf tournament in the United States. It's a bit like the British Open. And uh, what is fascinating is if you look at that price and you compare it with, uh, I compare it with the minimum wage uh, just to get a benchmark. So I think that the minimum wage is what you pay for the greenkeeper. And then, uh, that ratio has gone up tremendously. And it's gone up tremendously mostly since 1980. So exactly like the typical CEO to uh, uh, salary, et cetera. And what makes it most remarkable is that if you ask around, uh, golf players would play, play for free. This is, you you want to really go there for the prestige of having the green jacket and win the, the master tournament. So why do you need the price? And the reality is you need the price because there is competition among different prices. And so it's true that is inframarginal to some extent. It's also true that if the British Open were to pay 10 times what the master pays, uh, the master will uh, lose prestige. And the master has been making money 
tremendously because it used to be a local competition. People used to walk the day of the, of the tournament and get a ticket. Today, there is a 10-year waiting list to get a ticket because they don't price them correctly. And every time you get a ticket, it, it's worth 10 times on the internet. And uh, it's seen basically in every nation in the world. In Australia, they get up in the morning, to, early in the morning to see that. I don't know why, but that's sort of people <laughs> have this passion. So uh, I think that uh, uh, the, the return to uh, skill has increased tremendously as a result of globalization. And I see this as a problem not because I am afraid of inequality. I think inequality is an essential component of uh, a free market system. However, when somebody earns disproportionately more, his political power becomes disproportionately more. And so democracy is at risk. Um, okay, the chap, you no longer want to ask a question. Okay, <laughs> did you, you're still there. Okay, you were number two last time, so. Hello, um, my name is Riola. I'm a master's student here at the LSE. I was wondering about what are the causes of what that uh, ideal America you found when you got there has changed into what it is now. And if this alliance between business and political elites is not intrinsic to capitalism and to human nature to, to an ultimate extent. So, so I think it, it is a bit intrinsic to capitalism, absolutely. I think that uh, for a number of circumstances, uh, America uh, was better at making it less severe. And, uh, and uh, the sort of uh, populist tradition uh, that led to the progressive era legislation was very useful in that direction. It's, a, it's not a coincidence that antitrust was invented in the United States. And now, when we teach in the economic classes, we teach the cost of monopoly and all the stuff, and we interpret antitrust in those terms. But antitrust was not born on that basis. Economists had just started to study the distortion of monopoly. The real reason for the antitrust is there was a gut feeling of the American people that too big and too powerful was bad. After all, sort of, uh, uh, they fought against sort of uh, an evil empire to be free, and uh, they didn't want some, somebody else. I think that there is an element, when, when sort of, uh, they won the revolution, um, George Washington was offered to become king, and he refused. And the idea is that we don't want to have somebody that is too powerful. Uh, and this is true in the economic arena, and, sorry, in the political arena and the economic arena. One thing that is amazing of the US Constitution is the check and balances to prevent an excessive amount of power everywhere. And we need to translate that also in the economic arena. Because without it, the capitalist becomes corrupt. And when it becomes corrupt, people get upset. And when people get upset, uh, they uh, undermine capitalism and democracy. So it's, it's a vicious circle that we need to stop. It might be natural, but we need to stop it before it degenerates. Oh, you've put your hand up again this time. You've changed your mind. OK, so we'll come to you. Oh! No, you're beaten. But you're the next on the list. Get this lady here in the purple. You've got a microphone, oh, please. Thank yeah. you. My name's Caroline Meyer. Um, I was just interested in your comments about um, in the states um, delinking healthcare from jobs, um, because 
clearly we have a very different system over here. Um, it's state-run, so we tend to see it as inefficient and subject to the politics of the day. Um, but what I'm wondering is if you de-link um, healthcare in the states from jobs, whether in order to do that you need, to, uh, you need some kind of state regulation. Because one of the problems in the states, as I understand, and I can't say I totally understand the health system there, but if you, say, have cancer and you're in a job with healthcare, you probably have to stay in that job because who else is going to insure you? And you become a bit of an impaired life, so the insurance is going to be very expensive. Um, so it's quite, bearing in mind that the, we see here the NHS may go down the pan in five years or whatever, is a very interesting question for us, I think, about what will we replace it with? And if the states was to uh, try and de-link health care from jobs, how on earth are people going to get affordable health care um, without a lot of state interference? Uh, that, that's, that's a very good question, but let, let me clarify a, uh, a point because most people outside the United States, but also most people in the United States, don't understand that. There is this myth that in the United States, more for the healthcare is a private sector. In reality, it's a private sector when you're young and healthy because Medicare, which is for older people, is completely a government-run institution, and that's where all the expenses are. So when people were defending, uh, when Republicans were fighting against socialized medi me medical care, they have socialized medical care. Uh, and uh, because the older people are very powerful, I belong to this category now, thanks to David, the older people are very powerful, uh, they politically, they fight against any change there, but that's really the biggest problem. Because when it comes to sort of a, a people walking their walking age, you can achieve a catastrophic insurance at a relatively low cost. And then everything else should be discretionary. And this is in a, maybe you want to contract for some preventive health care with longer contract, etc. But I think that uh, people have seen in the United States the fact that uh, uh, it is their right to spend all the money in flat screen TV, but they should get health care at a very low cost and uh, not worried about it. And I think, unfortunately, it's not true. Uh, so I think that uh, there should be catastrophic health insurance, but that is not that costly. And in terms of what happens, uh, the association with the jobs, let me tell you another thing that I, I heard firsthand. The most affected are the small businesses because if you are a firm with six or seven employees, and one of those has a rare disease, which is very expensive, the insurance price, the insurance for that pool, uh, at the average cost for the, for the firm, which of course is very large. So you have a huge temptation to fire that person. Now, of course, officially you cannot do it, but many of those guys end up being restructured out of the job. All of a sudden, their job specification disappears and they lose their job. So now they find themselves sick with a rare disease without an health insurance, which is the worst possible outcome in the world. I think that this is really a, the, one of the biggest problems that need to be resolved. Okay, this chap in the middle. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, I have just two short questions. The first regard your proposal of taxing lobbying. I'm, 
I'm also Italian, so I would say that if you tax lobbying, lobby disappear, while in Europe we are trying to let lobby emerge legally. So wouldn't lobby in the US, if they're taxed progressively, transform into something else? Would you fear that? Then the second is political polarization is on the rise in, in democracies. In the US, the huge fight on the debt ceiling and so on. How do you think that would impact, first, the structure of capitalism you're talking about? And secondly, the division of product, product, productivity between labor and capital. I mean, I would wonder what that graph would look like in median terms rather than average. The distance, I mean, I had look at a couple of papers, it looks significantly higher. So it would be nice if you could comment on that. Okay, so they're all very, very good questions. So uh, certainly uh, there is a risk, like uh, in everything in life, if you tax it, uh, there is some tax evasion. Uh, the question is, what is the cost and what is the benefit? And uh, I think the registration system works fairly well in the United States. Uh, I think that uh, even with a tax, I think could could be uh, feasible, but it's something that needs to be studied. Um, I think is is sort of a worth thinking about. Uh, the second thing about uh, the polarization, uh, my view of polarization is because uh, people are focusing on the wrong problems, not on, on the right problem. I think that if you ask uh, uh, the majority of American people believe in free markets, which might not be true in a lot of other countries, but in the United States is true, and the vast majority of the American people are afraid of the power of big business. So these positions that I represent and I sort of state in my book are the majority position in the United States. But they have no political representation. Besides some isolated sort of people here and there, you, you look at the two major parties, none represents this position. So I think that uh, is an area that needs to be uh, created and uh, I'm not a politician and I don't plan to, to do it but I think that from an intellectual point of view you clearly see sort of a, a market there that needs to be filled. Um, on, on the last question remember these are uh, basically workers so there is not the t typical distinction between median and average applies when uh, you look at uh, across a lot of uh, sectors and services and uh, you put inside the financial sector and so on and so forth. With good producing workers is not that dramatic, but it's worth looking at. Thank you. We have time for one more question. Ah, the young lady gets it. Okay. All right. Thank okay. you. Um, you talk about the voucher system for the primary education and you said you would give vouchers to those who have parents that did not go to school or something like that. Yeah, more valuable vouchers. Okay. I will give vouchers to everybody, but more valuable. Proportional to some condition, but yeah. isn't it uh, arbitrary and it's similar to giving it to those who belong to a certain group, ethnic group or income? I mean, wouldn't it be better to just have a primary education public that is uh, efficient and then see who emerges from that? You know, if we had a benevolent dictator, uh, that would be the perfect solution. Unfortunately, uh, benevolent dictators are really in short supply. 
And is the same is a bit true with if you have a perfectly efficient state-run thing. Um, sure, the problem is that in general, uh, when you have a, a state institution, uh, is not very well run and tends to be captured by the insider. So exactly the same way in which the sort of healthcare industry is captured by the pharmaceutical industry, uh, the education industry is captured by the unions and. Uh, uh, I think that uh, generally when you think about chronic capitalists, you don't think about uh, the teachers' unions, but they are. Uh, as I, I want to be honest, as we are as academics, when we say education is priceless and people should take on all the debt they want in the world because education is priceless. No, there is a price. We charge for it. And, uh, and we, sh we should make sure that uh, they get their money worth. So I think that... Uh, uh, I don't think the solution is uh, uh, removing competition. I think that you might want to have some state education within the context of a competitive market where people have, have choice uh, because lack of choice is, is a big problem um, in, in every sector, including education. Okay, well, thank you very much, Luigi. Um, before we thank Luigi for... Uh, is uh, excellent talk and uh, in particular I have to say for a very interesting question and answer session for which uh, uh, you the audience uh, should be thanked for good questions I'd just like to point out that immediately after the uh, we leave here Luigi will be signing copies of the book outside of here um, where those of you that uh, would wish to uh, have him do that uh, whether you want, you've already bought a copy and you would like it signed, or I dare say you can probably buy one out there, and usually sell them, then uh, we form an orderly queue and so on. Uh, however, uh, it's my pleasure uh, to thank uh, Luigi for coming to the LSE and uh, presenting, uh, at least giving us a glimpse into his fascinating and, and very easy to read book, uh, and uh, uh, giving us a very useful and interesting discussion. So thank you very much, Luigi.